Amen. If you can now uh, go to our, our uh, scripture for this morning, John 13. That was an extremely encouraging report from uh, Zimbabwe, wasn't it? You know, even though we're not there on the field, we are, we are part of that work in our prayers and in the ways that we are supporting. That's our fruit also. It's not just something that's happening over there. It's the fruit of this church, this people. And so let us be encouraged. So John 13, I won't read the whole uh, from verse 1 to 14 as uh, Brother Tommy did, but I'm going to read verse 1 because the sermon really flows out of this idea of Christ manifesting his love, his love which is a love to the end. From verse 1 in chapter 13, Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. The the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we very much live in, in in a culture, in a time where the words of Isaiah prove true, do they not? Woe to them! that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I mean, that's a a description of the time we're living in, isn't it? Where morals are upside down, the basic understandings, the foundations of, of life are turned upside down. Things that societies and families are built off are being disregarded. And evil is being called good and sweet Bitter is being called sweet. And I think this is never so much seen in our culture's view of love. Our culture's view of love. What is love? Well, if we were to ask our culture and and the the leaders of our day, well, they would say, you know the slogan, it's been branded everywhere. Love is love. That, That would be their answer. A circular reason. Essentially, love is whatever you make love to be. Love is what you determine love to be. The problem with our culture's view of love is that in order to embrace their love, truth has to become a casualty. You cannot love according to their love. You must sacrifice truth on the altar. True love, as scripture says, rejoices with the truth. Love and truth are not enemies, they are the best of uh, friends. Jesus spoke of our, our time and he said, because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will wax cold. Will wax cold and we're seeing it. Yes, our culture speaks about love, but it's a love that has waxed very, very cold. It's freezing cold. But praise God, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is as still, as warm, and as vibrant. The love of the Lord Jesus Christ has not grown cold. Though he was crucified 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago Jesus Christ was crucified, yet we can say this morning, his love is still alive. And that's because he is still alive. He is a risen saviour, and the love he had then when he spoke to these disciples, and which he would then go on to display on the cross, is the love he has this morning, this moment, this second. 
His love has not changed. His love has not waxed cold. We can say the love of Calvary displayed there on the cross has not lost its power. It's still as fresh and as warm as if our Lord was crucified yesterday. It is still vibrant and effective. Yes, the darkness is increasing. Yes, lawlessness is increasing. But love wins, doesn't it? Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And from the Lord Jesus comes grace upon grace. And so we can say, as long as we have our Bibles in our hands, we still have love's true definition. We still have love's true act. And that is seen displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ. So I want to speak to you this morning about the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge surpasses knowledge yet rather than going to calvary's hill which you think we we would go i want to take us to the night before two thousand years ago in jerusalem a place called the upper room beginning in in john 13 which we read uh, earlier this morning that's the setting the upper room this section from chapter 13 on to the end of 17 is is what we call the the upper room discourse now I want you to picture this setting. It's a, it's a very intimate setting. We have Jesus with his 12 disciples. The doors are now closed. And it's just him and his disciples. And they are, they're eating a meal. It's an intimate setting. Just, just picture it. They're there. They're, they're in fellowship. They've been with each other for three years now. They've been living under the shade of Jesus. They've been fed by his hands. And now they're gathered together in this room. But there's a shift at this, this point in, in chapter 13. And the shift is described in those words found in, first, found in verse 1. That Jesus knew his hour had come. Three times we're told before from verse 1 to 13 that the hour of Jesus had not come. The hour of his departure had not come yet. Therefore, he still had work to do. But now, as we enter into chapter 13, we are told the hour has come. It's here. The reason why Jesus Christ lived and walked on this earth is coming to its climax. The time has come. The hour is near. The time now is limited. The sun is going down on this Thursday evening and the shadow of the cross begins to loom large over this upper room. Jesus will within 24 hours be lifted up as a lamb to draw all. All of them will forsake him and be scattered to their own home. Their Lord will be unexpectedly taken away. And though this evening may have begun like a normal evening there were many times they would have gathered to have fellowship like this over the before the passover the disciples immediately well not immediately but within time after the meal realized that this is not a normal meal after they've eaten to their shock to their astonishment they see jesus arise take off his garments and put on a servant's attire and begin to wash the disciples feet one by one must have been shocked must have just been sitting there like what's this is awkward what's happening what's happening now and so they know they knew something this is not just a normal meal something's happening this is this is significant this is different 
Jesus had been warning them beforehand, hadn't he? Time and time again, that in Jerusalem awaited for him mockery, tribulation, death, crucifixion. They hadn't really been listening. But now Jesus is making it crystal clear to them that what he is about to do is about is, is going to be significant. He is about to do something for them that will achieve the greatest need and that is the need of being washed and cleansed from our sins. You know, have you, uh, I'm sure you know the phrase, actions speak louder than words. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't, his words are not, uh, you know, every word, every jot and tittle is the word of God. It's true. But Jesus wanting to communicate how much he loves his own shows them in a very moving way, in a very practical way. He doesn't just say to them, and he does, you read, there's many words here from uh, chapter 13 on to 17. But he shows them in a very practical, in a very moving way, in a striking way, in a way that they will never forget how much he loves his own, how much he loves them. Jesus will now kindle a flame of love in them that their own failure and trial cannot put out. Having loved his own that were in the world, that was in the world, he loved them unto the end. Jesus has always loved his own. It was a love for him to clothe himself in our flesh. It was love for him to tabernacle among them, his disciples, for these long three years. But now love has reached its boiling point. He will now love them to the end. I love this phrase. It's a wonderful term, to be loved to the end. What does it mean? Well, it means he, he, he loves to the fullest measure. It has the idea of uh, perfection. He loves with a perfect love. He loves his own with a perfect love. And now he is going to display it. We could say that Jesus loves when Jesus loves a man or woman. He loves them so that they can be not loved no more. He loves them to the fullest measure. To the greatest extent. He loves unto the end. Right up to the last moment. The last night. The last supper. Jesus is concerned about showing his disciples his love for them. Isn't that an amazing thought? John 3.16 tells us, For God, God the Father, so loved the world that he gave his Son. Well, the Son so loved us that he now gives his life. And this, and this is what this, this instance of, of the washing of the disciples' feet, it's a foreshadow, it's a prefigure of what he is going to do what he is about to do and so again my desire this morning is to, to take us into this upper room focusing on these words he loved them to the end and to consider different aspects really of how this love is displayed for his own well first we see this perfect love of christ in how he considers them now think about this we can only imagine the immense pressure that was, was bearing upon Jesus at this moment. The hour of, of the cross had now come. The hour of his death. You can only imagine as he's beginning to see in his mind eyes. The whip, the nails, the thorns, the scoffing, the mockery. He, he can see it's coming. And you can only imagine how this weight began to, to bear upon him. As he sees within 24 hours this would be what this would be happening to him. He was going to die. Isn't it an amazing thought that Jesus is not consumed with himself? 
he's thinking about them. In his last fleeting moments, in his last few hours, he's thinking about his disciples. He's considering them. Jesus spends his last moments of freedom ministering to his friends. Now, we wouldn't find fault if we saw Jesus saying, guys, I've been telling you about I'm going to die. I've been telling you and you're not listening. It's going to happen now. I need you guys to help me. Just comfort me. Minister, be with me. Be with me. Comfort me. I need you. You don't see Jesus doing that. Any, any other man, any one of us, the thought of impending death would cause us to be filled with anxiety and panic. But look at Jesus, as calm as ever. As calm as ever. He knows it's coming, but he's... He's calm. He's steady. He's considering his disciples. But not only is the thought of his, his death looming large... And he's still considering his disciples, but also the anticipation of, of the great glory that awaits after his death. It says there in verse 1, that he should depart out of the world unto the Father. And in verse 3, that he was from God and now going to God. So Jesus sees his death, but he sees after. He sees what is going to come, that glory, that majesty, that wonder. He is now going to return to his father, the one from whom he had been away for so long. How many years had he spent in toil and difficulty serving and ministering and now he's returning to his father. Now he's returning to his beloved. Can you imagine? He must be excited about this. I'm going home. I'm going back to that place. I'm going to glory. Yet even that thought does not move Jesus' mind from his disciples to himself. He is still considering them. He is still putting them first and meeting their needs. In 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, we're told that love seeketh not its own. And here we see Jesus seeking not his own, but his disciples. Their comfort, their joy, their peace. But also we see in this instance, in this narrative, that the love of Jesus flows from his own will. It flows from his own will. Now, what do I mean? His own is not the cause of his love. Jesus did not, is, is not displaying this love for his own because of something he's seen in them. Some virtue, some quality, some, you know, we're like that, isn't it? Whether we, we can say we love unconditionally, but really we don't. There is something in our spouse or in our children or there's something that has drawn out our affections. And the struggle is to love them with our will, to love them unconditionally. That's where the battle comes. But Jesus loves with a love that proceeds from his own choice. You know, in Deuteronomy 7, 7, if the people of Israel could say to God, well, why did you love us? Why did you save us? It says this, the Lord did not set that word set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. For you were the fewest of all. You, you, you know, I could have chose Babylon. I could have chose Assyria. I could have chose a great nation. But I've chose you nomads. I've chose you Israel. No ones. In verse 8, but it was because the Lord loved you. I love that. He loved Israel because he loved them. He chose to love them. He decided to love them. It was his choice. Nothing moved him. He looked at Israel and said, I will love you. And that's what he says to us. That's what he says to his people. Jesus Christ loves with a love that is bound up in his own will. Flows from his own will. 
I love you because I love you. And we see this in, in, in this scene. Jesus, of his own will, what does he do? He lays aside his own garments in verse 4. No one prompts him. No one moves him. No one says, Jesus, wash our feet. He does it all of his own will, all of his own uh, intuition, all of his own self. He moves towards them in this type of love. And just as he now goes down on one knee and proceeds to wash their feet, well, this foreshadows what Christ will do when he lays down his life for us. He will lay down his life. No one takes it from him. No one forces his life from him. He does it. He does it out of love. A love that is bound to his own will. It's voluntary. It's proactive. He loves first. In John 10, 8, Jesus makes this point. He says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. Know that. No one took Jesus' life from him. He could have got out of that situation like that. But he didn't. Love brought him, kept him through it. His love for his own. Yes, we see Judas will betray him, inspired by the devil. Yes, the Jews will cry out, crucify him. Yes, the Romans will crucify him. But it happens because Jesus wills it to happen. And that's the only reason. Now, is this not love to its highest degree? Is this not a love that is love to the end? When it flows from the will. When it has no conditions upon it. When it is love because it is love. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us. And Jesus in the most wonderful, marvelous, unspeakable way is now showing this to us and his disciples in this moment. But let us move on. The love of Jesus is also a purifying love. In, in Revelation, in chapter 1, it says, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now this idea of washing from sin again is, is vividly and strikingly seen in this instance of washing of the feet. You know, if we could picture ourselves, now picture yourselves in this upper room. Picture yourselves there. And that you, you would notice, if you understood the context and the culture, you would notice that there's kind of an elephant in the room. There's an elephant in the room. There's a need in the room that no one has addressed. You could look around, you would see an empty basin. You would see a dry towel. And you would see 13 men sitting with unwashed feet. Now for us, we, we don't, you know, we wear socks and shoes, our feet stay relatively clean, some of us anyway. But then, this was a big thing. They wore sandals and they didn't have tarmac roads and paved roads. They walked on the dust. I mean, you look at the, some of the tarmac roads and how dirty they are now. Well, imagine them being dirt roads and people and horses and donkeys and animals going up and down and they're wearing sandals and it's hot and they're sweating your feet wouldn't be in a good condition after taking a, a, a leisurely stroll. Your feet would be dirty. And so if we were in this room and we understood the culture, we would see immediately, well, there's an elephant in the room. Why are these men, why have their feet not been washed? They're eating anymore. You know, you, you wash your hands before you eat. You know, why have their feet not washed? Well, it's a need that none of the disciples were willing to address. We're even told in, in Luke's account of this, this last supper, this upper room, we're told that the disciples are arguing who is the greatest among them. Who is the greatest? And so none of them were going to meet this need because none of them were willing to take the servant's role. Every one of them were like, no, 
you know, I'm, I'm going to be prime minister, you're going to be deputy, you know, they all wanted a seat and a position. And so there is this, this elephant in the room. And in this context, in this culture, you go into a Jewish home, there would always have been a, a water basin. If you was a visitor visiting someone's home, it would be the slave's task immediately when you entered into the house to wash the feet. You don't want to, you know, you know when you go into someone's house and they look at you and they're looking at your shoes like, are you going to take them off? You know, that kind of idea. You don't want to spread the dirt around. You know, and in the same way, their feet are dirty. Their feet need to be washed. But no one's done it. No one will take the role of humility. No one will go that low. No one will sink that low from the disciples. There is a need and no one will meet it and they will not because of their pride. And this communicates, well, this foreshadows the greater need. The greater need that none of us can meet. The greater need that Jesus alone will meet in the laying down of his life. This foreshadows the need of every person. Now we may not be able to relate to the need of having our feet washed by someone else. But we can re relate to the need of forgiveness, can't we? We can relate to the need for forgiveness. All of us can relate to the need of having a, a guilty conscience. Needing your conscience washed and cleansed. We can all re relate to the need of forgiveness. We all know something of what it is to feel unclean, to feel shame for sin, to feel dirty. Not our feet, but our souls, our minds, our hearts. We know what that's like to be spoiled by sin. And that is the reality. That is the need that we have that no one can meet, no one does meet. Just in the same way the disciples were unwilling and could not meet the need to wash their feet. In the same way, when it comes to sin, it's a need that none of us can meet. None of us can do. None of us can sink that low. None of us can humble ourselves. None of us has that virtue, that righteousness to obtain forgiveness of sins on our own. This is something that Jesus will do and must do. In Romans 3, we're told all have sinned. And you're included in that all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're told in John 8, the woman caught in adultery, who, he who is without sin, you throw the first stone. None of them could throw the stone and none of us could throw the stone. We all have sinned. So who alone is worthy? Who alone can Meet the need of forgiveness of sins. Who alone can obtain it? Who alone can get it? And it's Jesus Christ alone. Who is worthy? The Lamb. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The God-man. The enormity of our sin. The justice of God. Who can reconcile? Jesus Christ alone, my friends. And so Christ washing the disciples' feet communicates to us what Jesus is about to achieve at the cross. He is going to obtain a washing, not of our feet, but of our sin, of our defilement, of our spiritual defilement. Just as Jesus laid aside his garments, so he would lay himself on a cross. Just as he poured the water into the basin, Jesus will pour out his blood. And just as he removed their dirt, with his hands becoming dirty, so Jesus will remove our sin, our filth, by becoming sin for us. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 For he have made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be the righteousness of God. We might be made the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that love? To lay down your life. Greater love have no man than to lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus does this. He foreshadows what he is about to do. To obtain cleansing from sin. You know that is your greatest need. That is your greatest need this morning, this day. You may be thinking about your bills. You may be thinking about the, the many other things in your life. And I'm not trying to minimize them and say they're not needs. But your greatest need is to be free. Free from your sin. Free from the wrath of God that will come. Free from a conscience burdened by the guilt of your sin. And Jesus Christ alone can obtain that. And you have that when you know that you're forgiven. When you know that you are washed. Well, it puts everything into perspective. The problems that are so big in your life now become very small. The things that are plaguing you, destroying you, depressing you, ruining you. Well, when you know that you're loved with a love to the end. Well, what's the worst that can happen? What's the worst that can happen? To be loved with this love. But still this love is seen further and it's seen in the striking manner in which Jesus humbles himself. And what we learn from this is that love and humility go hand in hand. Now our culture says the opposite. Our culture says love and pride go together, which really they're opposites. They don't work well together. Any love that is based upon human pride is a false love, a self-destroying love, a self-destructive love, a love that leads to hell. But the love that the Lord Jesus Christ manifested here is a love that is fragranced with the deepest humility. Love and humility are close companions and where you find true love, you also will find true humility. Now, there really is, I would say, not much of a need to elaborate on this point because you can see from what's already been said, the humility displayed in this action. Jesus being God in flesh, washing his disciples' feet. But I'll just quickly read Philippians 2 from verse 4 because it's, it's kind of like a commentary, a commentary on what's happening here. Scripture commenting on scripture as it were. Let me read it from verse, sorry, verse 5, Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you. Now just have the scene of him washing his disciples' feet. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death, even the death of a cross. So this type of love that Jesus had for his, has for his own is a love which is united to humility. Jesus describes himself, what does he call himself? What does he say about himself? That he is lowly and humble of heart. Jesus is the king of kings, no doubt about it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the eternal God with all the blessedness that that, that entails. Yet here we find him in humble service. Imagine this. Here we find him doing the work of the lowliest servant. Washing his disciples' feet. Hands that sculpted the universe. 
hands that uphold the golden scepter of righteousness now have condescended to wash feet. You know, the problem with preaching is that you don't have words to communicate these things. And I, and I honestly just feel like just stopping because I can't get across to you what's happening here. It's, it's amazing. It's incredible. The love of Christ. The love of Christ. It surpasses knowledge. How are we going to preach on it? How are we going to think about something that surpasses knowledge? You know, if, if God didn't command us to preach, we wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. How could you? How could you? And we see with Christ, you know, you think of men and most men and women, they they struggle their whole life to gain a crown, some form of crown, some uh, form of of pride, of autonomy, of, of worth, of grandeur. And when they obtain that crown, men never give it up, do they? They would rather die than lose what they've gained in their life. They do die than rather lose all the, the, the riches and the fame and the authority they've gained in their life. But look at our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at him. He had it all. And he laid it all down. He had it all. The eternal God, though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes. He had all power and authority in an infinite measure and he gives it up for his own. Even beyond that, he will give up his life. A man's life is the most precious thing. I said it to the children, most precious thing that we, we have, that we own. Yet Christ will give up his life for us, for me. You know, I just want to say it, this: what manner of love is this? To be loved with this love. To be enveloped in this love. In Psalm, in one of the Psalms, I can't recall exactly where, maybe Psalm 62, it says that the, the love of God is better than life. You know, you are not made just to live, just to exist. You are made to know the love of Christ. The love of Christ, that's why we're alive, that's why this exists, to know him. He is eternal life. To be loved with an undying love, a perfect love, a love to the end. First John, we're told it is a love that casts out fear. Reminds me of the hymn we're singing after this, this sermon. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. This love of Christ like an ocean, deep, wide, What a thing it is to be loved by the Lord Jesus. As I said, to be enveloped in his love, to be taken up in his love. And can you say this morning, I know he loves me. I know it not because of doctrine, but his love has been poured into my heart. I know something of this love of Christ. Do you know anything of a warmed heart? Do you know anything of this? This is heaven on earth. This This is the best it gets. Taken up in the love of Christ. You know, that's real. We can know his love in a, more, in a way that is more than doctrine. In a way that is more than just doctrine and teaching. We can experience the love of God. Romans 5, it tells us the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. You can know something of a warmed heart and that God loves you. And it goes beyond the theory. 
and it will change you and it will break you and it will destroy you. But it's wonderful. And I mean that in a good way. You know what it is to be loved by a spouse or loved by someone. People crave human love. People die for human love. People give their life for human love. I'm not minimizing that again. Human love is important. But to be loved with this love. This love of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be loved with a love to the end. How unstable is human love? One minute it's hot and fervent. Next minute it's non-existent. But to be loved with a love that is always flowing. Always consistent. Always warm. Always fervent. This is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he has for his own. This is how he loves his people. This is the love that Jesus shares with his own. And as he intended in this instant of the washing of the feet, he wanted them to know it in a very practical, moving way. If you are his own, if you are a Christian this morning, he wants you to know this love. He wants you to know it. He wants you to know it, not just theologically, theoretically. He wants you to know it experientially. He wants you to be rejoicing in this love all the day. Conscious of his love. Living in his love. You know, Paul in Romans 8 was conscious of this. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Though I be in an ocean about to drown. Though I be whipped on my back and stoned half dead. I'm in the love of Christ. I'm conscious of it. It is a reality that keeps me going. Keeps me moving. Keeps me running unto the end. The love of Christ. Now, how many of us can say that we are conscious of his love this morning? How many? Can you say that you are conscious of his love this morning? How many of us go beyond the doctrine? How many of us go from the outer court into the inner court and then into the holy of holies? How many of us know this love? How many of us are conscious of his love? I would, I would think it would be a very few of us. I'm not going to go for a raise of hands, of course not, but... How many of us can say in this last week, I've had sweet times with Jesus. Amen. I've been there and he's been with me. And we fellowshiped. <laughs> can we say this? It's to our own detriment and our own hurt that we do not live consciously in the love of Christ. There is nothing better for you. And it's our own fault that we do not live under its conscious reality. That he loves us. Do not think it is a small thing to have left first love. I'm sure some of you could say, I've known that love. You could even recall the memories of your conversion. Or, but it is not a small thing to leave first love, my friend. It's not a small thing to abandon the love that you had at first. And that reality and that sense of Christ's love that you had at first. Do not look at that and just say, well, you know, the objection is the honeymoon period. How many times do I hear that? The honeymoon period. We have a honeymoon period and, and you know the love of God in a great way and then it fizzles out and cools out and you become cold. Well, you, you try to say that to your spouse. I loved you during our honeymoon period, but now we're five years in and uh, my love's grown cold for you. I don't think that would, that would go down well, would it? No, <laughs> you probably wouldn't get a, a smile. It would go down bad, wouldn't it? And in the same way, why do we think that we can speak to the kin of love and think of the kin of love in that way? Yes, Lord, I knew your love at first and I was... But now, well, life's become hard and I've become weary and I've failed so many times. I, I can't... Your love... 
It's not a small thing to leave first love. I fear many of us live off memories only and all we can seem to say is what the hymn writer said, where is the blessedness I once knew when I first sought the Lord? I felt like that. Where was that blessedness I once knew? Where is it gone? Why does it leave me? Where did I leave? Where did it go? Well, I want to help myself and I want to help you and I want to seek now in, briefly just to try stoke that love in your heart to set that flame going. Because we can, we, can, we can live like that as Christians. We can live in his love all the day. We can. We can. We actually can. And it's not about you being better. It's not about you being more righteous. It's not about you. It's about a clearer sight of him. That's all it comes down to, seeing him clearer. It's not about you going home saying, oh, go pray 10 hours. This is about you, where you are now, seeing Christ as you haven't seen him before or seeing him afresh again. And where do you see that? Well, you see it in this instance of the cross, of the washing of the feet. I want you to imagine, I want you to picture yourself approaching the door of that upper room. You're there and you approach that door and you begin to open the door and you hear Jesus call your name and say, take a seat. Take a seat here. And then you take a seat with the disciples, with his own, and you realize that you are his own. And as he begins to wash the disciples' feet, he comes to your feet. And to your shock, to your astonishment, he begins to wash your feet. And you're thinking, why? And he says to you, as he says to, to Peter, what I'm doing now, you, you don't understand, but you will hereafter. Now, now fast forward a few hours and picture Jesus Christ upon the cross. There was the foreshadow, there's the shadow, there's the prefigure. But now is it being displayed? And there he is on the cross. And now look with the eye of faith and see him laying down his life for you. Hear him, hear him on the cross say to you, I have loved you to the end and here it is. I've loved you to the end. I've loved you to be loved no more. Hear him cry from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama samabakthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's forsaken for you, for you. He's doing this for you. Then hear him cry a few moments later, it is finished. It is finished. And he looks at you and says, it is finished. And look in his blood-covered face. Look in the eyes of Christ. Those eyes that scripture tell us is like a flame of fire, full of desire and love. And hear him say to you, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with cords of love. Now tell me, does such not a sight for you, Christian, cause your heart to warm for Christ? It does for me. It does for me. When I see how much he loved me, you know, love is reactionary. Love is reactionary. You want to grow in your love for Christ. I said this before and it's true. You want to grow in your love for Christ, see his love for you. His love pulls out your love. It's not a work. It's not an effort. His love draws love out of you. You know, if you Observe a husband and a wife and when they get on well and things are working well, it's, it's reactionary. She loves him and he responds back and it's, it's the flow of love. And in the same way, seeing Christ on the cross for you, dying in this way, giving his life for you, draws out your love. Draws out your love towards him. To be drawn with the cords of love. And so, as I said, if this does not kindle some appetite for us, some appetite for Christ in us, then 
Scripture presents no higher motive. I could preach on here and tell you about the wrath of God and display to you about the torments of hell and still you might be driven to fear, you might be driven to reverence, but the love of Christ will draw you to a greater and deeper obedience. And I don't undermine the wrath of God. These things need to be mentioned. But in the context of this, his love, his love, his love. But there is an intruder and I'm going to, I'm coming to the end. There is an intruder and we see that in verse two. Supper being ended, the devil having now, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. There is an intruder in this meal, in this last supper. There is one who is there, but is not there who is present but is not present, who has his feet washed by Jesus, but he is not washed of his sins. He was, just think about this, he's exposed to the same love, exposed to the same saviour, exposed to the same grace, exposed to the same Jesus, yet all it seemed to do was harden him in his sin. You know, there's a saying, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And I realized that this morning, that though the love of Christ would be preached to you this morning, there are some who will melt in love for him and there's some, it will only harden you further in your sin. It will only become to you a license. Well, if Jesus loves like this, well, I'll be all right, won't I? That's the reality. We use love, his love as a license for sin and we've got it the other way around. Love produces obedience. And like Judas, there are some who are in the church around all of this, yet their thoughts are only towards sin. Their thoughts are only how they can betray this Jesus. My friends, like Judas, would you sell the kin of love for the pleasures of sin? For 30 shekels of silver, for nothing, for money, would you sell the kin of love for a temporary pleasure in sin? Or for your own pride? Because you want to do what you want to do. Would you sell him for that? To live in the world and to embrace a world that really hates, full of hate. May we not be like Judas. May you not, may none of you here be an intruder. May you have no, yes, your feet washed, spiritual cleansing, and may it be a real reality for you. May you not be here sitting, thinking about the sin you will know God, you will go out here and do, the way you will betray Christ. This is literally what's happening here. He, this is happening. He's thinking about betraying him. It's incredible. But this is a reality. This is what happens. This is true. This is a striking example of how the love of Christ hardens some men, some women, in their course of destruction. And as I said, I would hope some of you who are not believers here, and I know there are some here who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope you would see this love as something to draw you to Christ, that you would see this love of how he died for you and for your sins, and you would respond not by going out these doors and jumping back into the world, but by receiving him, believing in him, trusting him, repenting of your sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is worthy. For he is worthy. And I, I will end now with one encouraging thought. One encouraging thought. And it's this. Do not doubt. We should not doubt God's love. We should not doubt Christ's love 
on, on a cloudy, by a cloudy providence, by a dark season, by the circumstances going on in your life. We do that so much, don't we? We go through trials and we do go through trials and we think, where is God? Does God love me? Now just picture the disciples here. Jesus is showing them how much he loves them right before they all forsake him and run away. He's crucified and they're scattered to their own home and as it were, left alone. And they don't understand any of this. They don't understand why this is happening. Jesus loved them and he loved them to the end, yet his love does not keep his own, his people from trials. In fact, the love of Christ is such, not that it protects us from trials, but it, it goes with us through the trials. It brings us through as gold refined by fire. Christ's love makes trials beneficial for us. We all have trials, believer and unbeliever. Bad things happen in life. But you see, for the unbeliever, those bad things end in their destruction. They have no way out. They have no hope. This is their best life now. And it ends now. But for the believer, the bad things that happen in our life, well, what are they doing but ripening us for eternal glory? They're making that... They're weighing up, they're building weight for the eternal glory that will be revealed to us. And so the love of Christ, my friend, do not doubt his love for you. You can still live under the conscious sense of God's love, though you be in the worst trial. Though you be in the hardest trial, you can still be consciously aware that he loves you. Remember, his love is not determined by your circumstances. You cannot read God's providences by providences really you need to read what he is doing by his word and sometimes by looking back and saying okay now it makes sense how many times have I been into trials and I thought God hates me why is this happening didn't understand it but months years down the later I can look back and say no he loved me to the end and he showed it to me and it was necessary my friends, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of love. Will you give your heart to him this morning? For he loves with a love to the end. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the truth of your word, the love that you have displayed so marvelously in the cross. Lord, may it touch every heart, every mind, and may none of us leave like Judas with sin in our heart, Lord, the desire only to betray May we all leave here. May this church, may this place, may every believer here see a clear view of Christ and his love for them so that in reaction their love would be inflamed and they would know the joy unspeakable and full of glory. Thank you. We bless you and we praise you. For Jesus' sake, amen.